0: say a uh, final point, then I'm going to introduce Andrew.
1: You watch. They're going to find flaws with that that warrant, and the whole thing's going to come crashing down, okay? And then the FBI is going to be put under a microscope, and we're going to get some reform. Some people are calling for the uh, disassembling of the FBI.
0: Yes. Uh, you know. At <laughs> this point, it's logical, and it's a no-brainer. Now, anyway, because of the... Uh, not let the manifestations of any allegations or indiscrepancies they may or may not have it, it's blown out their face is seen. Uh, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I mean we, we want to expose what you know we want to uh, bring to the forefront what exactly came down to a raid a an ex president's house. I mean that's unbelievable. And what were they doing, those those perverts? And Milena's closet. They were sniffing around, if you know what I mean. Oh, that black
0: guy, Oh, yeah.
1: That
0: black guy. Danny uh, sniffers. <laughs> I was
1: talking about. The,
0: yeah. Accurate. I didn't want
1: to say it, but you, apparently you did.
0: <laughs> uh, but that being said, uh, let's introduce our guest. He's with us, Andrew Bishago. Professor Robert D. Hills. Marcus Garvey. Oh, uh, Angel, can you mute him, then until I, after I introduce him? <laughs> But Andrew DiBashago is the American lawyer, writer, public speaker, media personality, and presidential candidate best known for serving as a U.S. chrononaut in Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel, blah, 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 and as a U.S. astronaut in Project Mars during the emergence the emergence of interplanetary exploration. Now, that being said, all right, he's also... Uh, admitted to the Washington State Bar Association and the United States District Court for the Western District of Washington. Boy, Frank, you might have some questions regarding those district court issues we're dealing with, but uh, later on, if he's if he's willing to hear it. But uh, aside from that, thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, it's great to have you on. And uh, as I know, you have Good a To be passion. back
2: with you, Gary. I I just want to say that um, I had five six general points about the entire legal field. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't want to address what's going on with uh, former President Trump. I would say this, which in regard to the FBI, it's not really known in this country that the FBI began under J- John Edgar Hoover in the beginning, toward the beginning of the, of the, of the last century, as the Bureau of Investigation. And what he was, when the FBI was started, was a kind of a clerk at the Library of Congress. And any American who gave a speech or a talk or distributed any literature that attracted more than five fellow Americans was being kept in a, a an index file kept by Hoover Mm -hmm. My source on that is Professor Robert A. Hill of UCLA who was involved in the Marcus Garvey and the United Negro uh, Improvement Association archives that he was able to tell Garvey's story very fascinating life actually sort of the economic aspect of civil rights under Garvey rather than the you know the future civil rights work of King and, and others but you know, we all talk about the, the the FBI, and we were all subjected to that TV show by the FBI um, with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. I think was a Quinn Martin production. So we have a view of the FBI as this this uh, law enforcement agency, but originally it was a political suppression operation. Huh. If you attracted more than five people fellow Americans, you were viewed as a possible so-called radical syndicalist. And I just thought I would share that when I I heard you, I wouldn't come on and you were talking about the FBI. I don't have really any opinion of what's going on right now beyond that, but I just wanted to share that as a piece of history that has, for the most part, been lost uh, in American society.
1: Well, it looks like it's playing out again, Andrew, don't you think? they are trying to they're returning to that kind of mentality well
2: pretty much i mean it's being used apparently as a political suppression organization rather than as a law enforcement agency so i just wanted to share that that's how it originated under hoover he was not you know he was a g-man right government man but he was not an leo he was a Somebody who was suppressing the right of Americans to exercise their First Amendment rights to freedom of, of, of speech, press, and assembly, and, and religion, for that matter.
1: And later, by, set, and later in the seventies and eighties, the COINTEL program. Hmm.
2: Exactly, but you know, COINTELPRO essentially began under Hoover. I, I I'm blanking on uh, Professor Hill's statements to me, but mm-hmm. I, I did an article for the LA Reader about his work into Marcus Garvey about 40 years ago.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that Hoover started the Bureau of Investigation in like, I'm getting the, I'm getting the date 2005, or excuse me, uh, 1905, or I, I, I believe it was before World War I. I, I, think it was, I think it was. I think it may have been as early as 1905. And then, of course, with John Dillinger and all the gangsters of the Depression, he became known as this vaunted G-Man shutting down crime. But, but the FBI did not begin as a crime-fighting organization. It began as a political suppression racket with being led by a clerk at the Library of Congress who was keeping an index file. So, um, into those who couldn't be trusted. You know, those expressing their first time, amendment rights.
1: At that time, who was behind him to form that agency that that <sighs> does what you're saying is doing?
2: That's a good question. All, all I know is that you know it was not a a, a law enforcement agency. It was a political effort to essentially um, keep tabs on anybody even marginally exercising their first amendment rights. I mean, five people who cares, you know, I'm talking about, you know, somebody who would be in some park in New York city and express their views. Um, and, uh, and they were keeping tabs on them. Huh. That is generally not known. That's why I lawed professor Hill for even discovering that. He was able to tell Garvey's story because everything he said and did was being a record was being kept of it by the originally the Bureau of Investigation, which then became the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Same thing with a uh, professor. I think his name was John Weiner, who did the work on the FBI following um, musician John Lennon. Yeah, um, that paperwork filled. I, re- I recall from, again, what John Lennon was killed uh, by Mark David Chapman. 42 years ago this year, right? 1980, December of 80, was it, I think? And um, uh, the the uh, UC Irvine history professor, John Weiner, I believe was his name. It's been many, many years. Did a study of FBI surveillance of John Lennon of the Beatles. What, for writing such a controversial song as Imagine, you know? And... Uh, and they that, that documentation that from john's life well it filled it filled a a small uh a small bathroom of 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 a room you know it, it, it they basically had everything on john lennon going back to the early days and it was a lot of documentation
0: were they then connected with the oss uh back back then as well uh or is, yeah no, no, the
2: OSS was the original name of the CIA. But no, I think the the precursor to the FBI predated the um, predated the OSS and the CIA. The CIA, of course, was started in September yeah. of nineteen forty seven. It had been the o, the Office of Strategic Services the during World War II. But um but uh you
1: know, in what, Frank? The Garvey case was in 1920.
2: Oh, the oh. Garvey case was 20. Okay, so I was 15, 15 years off. But I do remember it was very, what, what struck me when I interviewed um, Professor Robert A. Hill for the Los Angeles Reader, going back, I guess, about 40 years this year, maybe a little bit later, maybe it was a little bit closer to the mid part of the 1980s. I was just struck by what could get you in the Bureau of Investigation. Files. It was essentially any exercise of your First Amendment rights. To, to the fewest number of people, you know? It's just amazing. What do you what do you uncovered? Wow.
0: I'm sure I'm in it now, and many of WIDA uh, we people as well. You know, we're all being considered, as I'm sure you heard, white supremacist, terrorist bigots. <laughs> Boy, wait that's something, uh Andrew. But um but still, everything though regards to what's going on government-wise on the outset of it, the regards to the law, though, and courts, man, they seem to have really switched off the the Constitution and the things that they're supposed to uphold. Or am I misspeaking there, sir?
2: Well, I mean, I spent, oh God, I spent about 10 years in the state of Washington, Uh one of our most liberal progressive states with one of the strongest labor movements in the history of the country. When I had the recantation of a 12-year-old who had falsely alleged that a 22-year-old young man had had sexual intercourse with her and hence, you know, had had uh, committed statutory rape. And I had recantations from her when she was turned 16.
3: How old and was she? And then again,
2: when she turned... She was it was originally alleged by her Uh based on the duplicity of her mother. It was not true that this neighbor boy who was 10 years older had had sex with her when she was a kid. You know, and that's wrong. Obviously, it's illegal in in every state. The age of consent in Washington state happens to be 16. So when she turned 16. um, What, four years later and then again, 10 years after that. When she turned 26, I had a recantation from her saying he didn't do it. Uh, my mom um, made a pass at him and talked talked me into defaming him. It didn't happen, and the state of Washington would not honor the recantation. So one thing I was thinking about in thinking about tonight's show is what about a con? You know, when I was when I was thinking about five or six ways to improve the legal system in america what about the notion that when the alleged victim of a crime of any nature publishes a recantation that's signed and notarized signed by them and notarized by a notary public right that a constitutional amendment would say that's it the person who was doing the accusation is denying that it was a true accusation isn't that consistent with justice with what we what we began as, as a, a a nation that began as a Christian country where bearing false witness is what violates the Eighth Amendment. What are we doing keeping people locked up in cages when their alleged victim acknowledges that they were not guilty, that they were lying? At what, whatever age. This can happen when a, a 12-year-old or a 102-year-old lies on the stand and says that person did that. Okay, so I had it I I had total proof from this individual and I got signed and notarized recantations twice when she just became of age under the age of consent law in Washington, and then ten years later, when she was twenty-six, and the state of Washington would not release my client. Hmm. And I would I would do these appearances and I would say, Is this should this be constitutional? She's even acknowledged why her mother made her lie and state that this young man had, had had sex with her. And that was because the mother had made a pass at him. That's she, as old as the Bible too, right?
0: Yeah, she's even more guilty. She's an adult.
2: Right, right. And she was never she's... prosecuted. But, 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 but Washington was saying, oh, well, recanting young women who grow up, they still lie about their accuser. And that's an interesting theory of psychoanalysis, but it's not what was occurring legally. What was occurring legally is that the person was innocent, and had been falsely accused, and that really bothers me about the direction that the law has in,
1: taken. In other in states, measure. they did accept their recantation, but, but Washington seems to, uh, but Washington seems to be, you know, a bad example of, of courtroom decor. Uh, anyway, it's the discretion of the judges. That, that caused that kind of failing. Exactly. You know, and using, I don't think it should they're be not discretionary. Using they're using yeah. their discretion. Go ahead.
2: Right. I, I don't think it should be discretionary. I think it should be a constitutional right. Correct. Uh, to immediately be declared innocent when you are innocent. And the person who accused you originally admits that they lied for whatever reason. And that just shocked me. I just spent years on that case. And I thought, is there some kind of problem in the Northwest about Sex or something? Remember the old Wanatchee, Washington case—a similar case of pedophilia
1: well, that apparently did are, not happen. judges didn't want to lose face. I guess, yeah. but it,
0: but it seems to be It's a supporting of agenda too to protect. Uh, I think where he's going, possibly—I'm not putting words in your mouth, sir—is uh, protection of pedophiliacs, which most likely they are as well. A lot of these. Judges well, that could be. That, nice. that could be the
2: motive for such a condign deprivation of somebody's right to justice. You know, there's civil liberties. But I just want to see that a constitutional amendment. you know you're you get a recantation from an alleged victim, you're free. That's it. Of course, you could have laws against some kind of forcing of a recantation. If there's obviously any evidence of somebody threatening somebody or you know, essentially manufacturing a false recantation, that would clearly be a fact question that would need to be considered, especially when you've got a 10-year age difference in, in the case of statutory rape between, you know, the the perpet—the alleged perpetrator or the convicted perpetrator. Now, this young man had pled guilty primarily because he wanted to uh, get a lesser sentence. And that's another thing I want to talk about. So why not yeah. go to
0: that? I got another yeah. question. Know. Know. What? What? Hold yeah. on, Frank. What if now? Let's say a recant goes through good, and they and they accept it. What happens to the person that has already paid either with time or financially? Are they reimbursed?
2: Yes, that is provided for by Washington law. But instead, he began smoking marijuana again, and they threw him back in in state prison.
0: And now now another thing
2: I want to talk about, which is nonviolent drug offenses.
0: Yeah. Uh, These are all kind of related. Yeah.
2: But let me let me go back to the first thing I want to discuss. Okay, okay, Gary. Yes, sir. Because I think that the American legal system is corrupt at the inception of legal studies. Now, what do I mean by that? What I didn't know when I took the law school admissions test, when I applied to a handful of schools in the western United States, I was a Californian at the time, mm-hmm. and um, uh, when I began studying law, that it is convention at American law schools and in the legal profession to base your ability to get a law job after law school, after passing the bar exam in your state, based on your performance as a 1L, as a, as a first-year law student. They don't tell anybody that. Now, when I found that out, I thought, you're telling me that if I don't do so well my first year, I'm going to have only the opportunity to work for myself as a lawyer in, in private practice. How am I going to learn how to practice law? Law school doesn't teach you how to practice. Right. It just teaches you the law. It doesn't really teach you how to run a business if you're not hired by a prosecutor or some Tony law firm. But it's worse than that. And that's the first thing I wanted to discuss. What I found at my law school, which was Northwestern School of Law at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and I asked fellow lawyers all over the country after being admitted to practice in 1996, I found that the practice is such that at every law school, sure, you can read your cases. You can read the law guides from, I don't remember the names of them, I think, from a and other kind of publishers, right? But at most of the law schools in this country, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, there is a kind of a network that's coming from somewhere. I never found out what it was. But what I'm saying is that 1Ls, some one at most law schools in the country are getting they're getting notes that give them a kind of a shortcut to studying. In other words, there's a corrupt system of providing some of the 1L notes to prevail at the first-year lawsuit. And where is that coming from? Is it coming from Satanists? <laughs> is it coming from the cabal? Is it coming from reptilians? Is it coming from... Illuminati? Is it coming from Freemasons? I have never answered that question, but I verified the fact that it's going on all over our country. In other words, you enter law school, you learn how to brief your cases, you can save your study time by buying relatively inexpensive paperback you know, books to the law or that subject, but most students, or at least a, a significant plurality of students, are not informed that there was a network at that school to provide people sort of like cheat sheet by professor. Now, so my first idea about how to improve the American legal system is to make that illegal. If if the GPA during the first year of school and only the first year of law school is what matters in the American legal field and your GPA during that first year is everything. And you're going to be evaluated based on not so much the studying you do, but whether you were fortunate enough to, to get those cheat sheets from this network that's influencing who's studying at your school. Let's make that illegal. Let's make everybody study and everybody prevail at their studies, and if we don't, we're not going to have the best people as prosecutors, as uh, defense lawyers, uh, and in different forms of private practice, but that's not going on in America. In other words, I discovered to my chagrin, not only when I was in law school, but then when I began practicing in Washington at the federal and state level and began talking to other lawyers. That there are these dishonest networks that are giving specific students inordinate help, an unfair advantage. So that's you think it's emanating despair. from
1: the bar, Andrew? Well, they're it bar, Could huh? be
2: Blood It bar. could be. It could be. It could be the bar literally, um, or or the bench sort of picking their own. It's sort of like I view it as yeah, sort of a great. form of invidious discrimination. I didn't have any evidence it was based on gender or race, um, but it is going on now. I don't. I never found out where it was occurring, but I did find out from fellow practitioners that it is occurring, and that's never discussed. Um, and I'm I'm concerned mostly that if you're not competing on a level playing field, how do we know that those not just who are admitted to the bar association, but who are in either state or private practice, are the yeah. best in of their, of their field.
0: If They're you're not, not, and, 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 if you're not and, on a level plane, are they even on a square? Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, and it, it's, it's very disturbing because it's so un-American to say, okay, you're going to be paying this huge amount of money. You're all going to be starting at the same starting block. Uh, we're going to evaluate your 1L performance, your first year performance to determine whether you get a job in the law when you graduate and pass the bar. Some major hurdles ahead. You know, you've already done well on the law school admission test, and you've been admitted. I mean, I was admitted at, at uh, Northwestern School of Law with a Dean's Fellowship for Excellence. Why? I had been a protege for uh, for three years for Norman Cousins, who was a, the editor of the Saturday Review and a former top speechwriter for President Kennedy. I had done three years of writing for Captain Jacques Cousteau under the direction of Good. his son Jean Michel, and I. I was sought by Lewis and Clark because I already had environmental creds. You know, I was already an environmental journalist, so they were happy to get me. But then I go there and I find out that all over the country they're engaging in this dishonest practice of evaluating you by your 1, 1L performance, your first year of, of law school, even after three years later and bar passage. But it's not fair. There's a, there's actually a system, and I even had a, an argument with the career advisor at my school when I graduated. I forget her name. She... Treating treat it like has, a
0: priesthood. Treating it like a priesthood as it was, too. It sounds kind of cultic. Is that not accurate, sir?
2: That That's where I was going with that, Gary. It's sort of like, isn't your chance of becoming a, a Catholic priest uh, increased on a cultic basis if you've been a an altar boy when you were a kid and a, a brother or a deacon for the church. In other words, whenever you have a, an oligarchical collective like the law, you have to ask, how are they selecting their own? And I just wanted to raise the point tonight that I don't believe the legal profession is selecting its own based on merit or ability or right. intelligence or even, we're for selecting that matter, a, law performance. I don't know
1: whether you're going to play the game.
2: Yes, and it is correct. Okay now, and, now and, I uh, didn't write this down but let me let me mention this yeah germane to this issue of fairness I aced through the Washington State Bar I, I believe it was 1845 minute essays took it first time I took it I passed the uh, the professional responsibility component of it and then I took it again and I passed with those 18 45 minute essays now I took California twice and it was not passable and essentially, the brightest classmates of mine at UCLA never passed. And then I started to do some significant thinking, some pattern recognition, which I was actually trained in as a kid, as one of our first chrononauts in DARPA's Project Pegasus. And I realized that, um, gosh, I, I, I lost my train of thought on that. I just had dialysis today, so forgive me. What, what was I saying?
0: Uh, when you were basically a uh, when you were a kid, you had um and, uh, a part of Project Pegasus that uh I guess it had something to do oh oh
2: with pattern pattern recognition right I so I was skilled sure. in pattern Sorry. recognition that's what I was talking about and when I took my UCLA classmates my undergraduate classmates who did not pass the California bar I found that all of us had been sort of activists or people seeking justice as college students. I had a friend, for example, who went down to Nicaragua and met with Daniel Ortega of Nicaragua, not to hey. overthrow the U.S. government, but to find out about the concerns of Nicaraguan. And he was not even an Hispanic kid. He was a Jewish kid from, from the San Fernando Valley. And he was told when he came back, I won't use his name. He was, he, let's just say his name was Tom. It wasn't, but somebody said to him, Tom you are never going to pass the California bar. And he said, why? And he says, because you went to uh, Nicaragua. Now, what did I do at a California college when I was a student at UCLA? Mm -hmm. I wrote a series of articles that got the Veteran Administration's principal demographic study of Agent Orange kicked off the UCLA campus, where the Mm -hmm. professor who was scheduled to do that study said, and this is a direct quote, this I remembered, and this is like, 40, about 40 years ago this year. He said, fear due to publicity is likely to be the greatest health effect of Agent Orange. So I went to this professor's office and I said, Professor, what about right here in Ralph Nader's book, Who's Poisoning America? How can you say what you've said if it says right here in in Mr. Nader's book that at the time that Agent Orange, White, and Blue were used in Vietnam as defolium, there were 24,000 studies about the fact that these defoliants had been contaminated with tetrochlorodibenzoperidioxin. We always called that dioxin, but it was actually TCDD. And as a result of those articles, I got the VA's principal demographic study kicked off the UCLA campus. I don't even know where it was ultimately done. But then I think it was uh, Judge Jack Weinstein, I believe his name was, in the 90s, who said, I'm not going to allow any any uh, relief here for the Viet vets because they could have gotten this dioxin in their bloodstream from growing up in Pittsburgh. you know. So it ultimately got knocked down by a judge after the VA did not succeed at knocking it down through a rigged uh, ep- epidemiological study of Agent Orange at UCLA. But my point is not so much to talk about Agent Orange, but it's just to say that all of the brilliant individuals at UCLA that I knew who went on to law school after college, who did something meaningful as undergraduate, something that would piss off the deep state, as it were, did right. not pass the California bar. And when I asked the distinguished Washington lawyer, great friend of mine, brilliant lawyer, J.J. Sandlin, John J. Sandlin, um, who's done 16 minutes and been really distinguished publicly as, as an attorney. And I'm very proud that JJ said that that I was a brilliant lawyer for proving my time travel claims in the court of public opinion. I right. said, Do you think that was going on? And he said, Yes, California is part of the deep state and it's corrupt, as are all the bar associations. So in other words, again, just like Hoover starting the FBI as the the Bureau of Investigation, I believe that the American legal profession discriminates against those who exercise their first amendment rights if you rely on your first amendment rights freedoms of speech press and assembly as a college student you are essentially blacklisting yourself from the practice of law
0: or as a a man like myself doing a broadcast show in the interest of justice you don't have to be a free person to adhere to your rights especially about free speech Shut me up. That's what we used to say growing up back in New York. Shut me up. Now, the way that
2: uh, just to get back to that point, the way that comes together is that look, if you don't have the same cheat sheet to excel in your first year of law school, what don't you get upon not just upon law school graduation? Because I mean, I got my my JD in time, you know, in, in 1991 and Took me a few years to pass the bar, but that's because I had gotten two more master's degrees. Not really because the bar was that hard for me. Um, and um, what that does basically is it prevents those who don't have those cheat sheets from getting a law job. So I view it as a conspiracy, essentially to to help some kind of oligarchical collective that's coming from exactly. somewhere. I don't know what it is. It's certainly not, like I said, any race or gender. Or religion, you know, it's not the wasps or the Jews. Or anything I'd like say that. it's Something a bar.
1: Bit more- I say it's a bar, and I say it even goes back to Britain. You know, the Britain's influence upon our law system. But for myself, I can say that I'm not a lawyer, but I've learned mm-hmm. a lot of law, and I got them running because nobody controls. Me. So. Um, well, that's I'm
2: you know I'm glad I, I spoke about this today on the show so that I could get your views because I've always wondered. I guess the old uh, what the old barrister solicitor example of 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 Britain could explain it. It could al- it could also explain the fact that they sort of pretend that everybody can be a a, a lawyer for the state. Or the or them federal themselves. government or be in private practice.
0: Or but is themselves. that true? Is
2: is it in fact an attempt to create a a group of barristers working for the United States or the different states?
1: Exactly. And a
2: group of solicitors who are practicing on their own behalf. That's kind of what okay. I so, concluded that are so let's, doing.
1: Let's move to the subject of the federal courts. Okay. And let's talk about how you're in civil forfeiture court. Okay. And the way they start uh, the proceedings is it's rule five, admiralty law. Okay? Now, Gary's involved in a case, which I'm doing research for. Okay? And we're giving them a run for their money. In civil forfeiture... Yeah, I'm
2: attracting, by the way. My
1: money, How with their money. is my money. Right. We We know that. So basically, they come in with, like, Gary's merely a claimant. He's not a party. And so he has no rights. He has no rights to defend himself. You got to be kidding. So, so Gary comes in. I don't recognize Admiralty Law. And there's, and there's safety valves to rule, rule five. Rule G. Excuse me. G5. Right? And the safety valve is rule C and rule e that if the issues go become constitutional then they have to go away from admiralty court and and enter the rules of federal procedure so that's that's where we're at right now in the courts okay but and the,
0: is the defendant money i got some questions get on the stand
1: yeah you know do you know about that andrew they say it's the United States of America versus the the seven thousand uh one hundred and ten dollars they stole from Gary. Well, I was gonna talk about
2: I mean not specifically, I'd have to investigate it. I wouldn't just comment yeah. off the cuff. But
1: yeah, but 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 and um, an object being the party and Gary's not the party, the owner of the money. Are you following my logic? Like stand,
2: it's not like a standing issue. You know, standing of course is the ability to stand before right. court and get relief. Um, okay.
1: So we have we have a method to defeat them, All right.
0: Yeah, Am I have no standing.
1: Rule sixty. You know about Rule sixty, the federal rule A and B.
2: Sure, I know all this stuff, but I never, I never just talk about law on the fly like this. I would, I would prepare yeah. for this. But, okay,
1: all right. Well, I'll just yeah. tell you. I'll just tell you. Uh, so, Rule A, sixty A. Please fix your mistake, right? And don't just go deny. You know that power of denial. Denial, denied, and you can never go, go in it. <laughs> but in Rule 60B, you can take an independent action and turn the whole thing around, become a party, and sue the judge. <laughs> so we're gearing ourselves up for doing that. Damn, and I, I guess, really. Well, you know what? I'm, the battle I've
2: been fighting, the battle yeah. I've been fighting is that I did a variety of things for the government at a very dangerous level and at a young age, when I was age six to 11, I was time traveling for the government and right, from age 19, to oh, twenty-two, everyone, I was going to Mars for the government. Yeah. And I went to really leading lawyers like JJ Sandon, like Gregory Kofori uh, of Portland, Oregon, Kofori and McDougal, the uh, Mark McDougal being the, like the nephew of Myers McDougal, the prominent, Lawyer and Dennis Palmieri of Malibu, California. And basically, they all said, Andy, if this is something that the executive branch, namely the Intel community, doesn't want known, they're just going to rule 12B1 and 12B6. Basically, frivolous claim and failure to state a claim. In other words, there is no justice in America. That's why I left the field. Okay, I'm not practicing. For somebody to do what I did for the country, and literally study the law at my expense and reach the federal level of practice of admission to practice and not be able to go in front of a visa court or just a standard federal court and say this is what i did for the country and i can prove it i have i proved my time travel my mars visitation claims years ago so but what the they, issue is there's they, no justice if the if the deep state doesn't want you to talk about something. Right. You can say, oh, sorry. Frivolous claim. There is
1: justice, justice, Failure to okay. state a
2: claim. Boom. There is, Goodbye.
1: There is justice, okay? You know what a justice is? You need to get the case to the jury where the jury is decided. Out of oh. the hands of the judge. That's the truth. Oh.
2: Well, that's optimistic, but that's not <laughs> what fellow practitioners assured me. I think you're forgetting that If they don't want something heard in open court or even in the FISA court, they do not let such a case get to a jury. And uh, I'm going to try a few more really distinguished lawyers, somebody with the desire to take this case. I've, in fact, got even a a few in mind right as we speak, but I don't believe that it will even be heard. You know, there were people at CIA who would say to me, oh, just bide your time. You know, bide your time, and, and you you will be you will be given the space medal of honor that you won for saving somebody's life on Mars. One of our your fellow astronauts' life on Mars. It's right there in your CIA file. Blah blah blah. And uh, I don't believe that's true. I believe that we've kind of re- regressed in terms of even telling the people about the ET situation. I mean, my father worked on um the ramjet to chase the et craft of our atmosphere beginning in october of 1952 that was 70 years ago and they're still showing these programs on tv about you know the <laughs> the benny and barney hill case and travis walton you know so mm-hmm. i don't believe i'm ever going to get paid for what i did for our country they are not allowing it and they're using Legal, legal rigmarole, legal hoops, basically just spurious arguments to deny your day in court. So is that a warrant for revolution? Unfortunately, yes. Um, Technically, exactly. yeah, so. it's
0: pounded with everything else going on. And with everything else going on, it, uh, I think it makes it more plausible and people do see deeper in the uh, words and story as being the truth. And uh, these people are diabolical, and now they don't care. Now they just want to kill us. And I ain't going down like that. I'm not eating the fucking bugs. I don't care what anyone says. I'm not eating the bugs. All right? Well,
2: that means- look, at something, look, at, look at something that's taken as, as for gratis by most American lawyers and not even considered. Gary, do you know how many guilty pleas are entered in the United States by innocent people who then go to jail? Every year in America, according to the American Bar Association itself, and most lawyers don't even know this, because it's, in 10%, this it's 10% of people in prison. It wow. is 600,000 Americans. Wow.
1: I bet you're greater than that. Six,
2: f- perhaps. I mean, it's at least 600,000. It's probably more now. That's, I, I, that's from a couple of years old. I looked that up about two or three years ago, maybe even more. I, things are kind of running together because I've had a lot of health issues with my eyes and my kidneys and stuff. I'm not totally on top of my game right now. And I, I acknowledge that, but I looked into that and I found that 10% of the guilty pleas being entered are by innocent people to sort of make a, make a plea deal and, and not be, uh, not
0: yeah, the, and uh, yeah. who wants it? a deal for a year or two, make a okay. deal, get out of there.
2: Right. Right to to cut a, a plea deal and essentially it's usually a lesser included offense or at least less time in prison or whatever a smaller fine or both whatever right. uh, a misdemeanor rather than a felony or whatever right but imagine that six hundred thousand Americans locked in cages called prison cells after not doing anything just pleading guilty to avoid a greater penalty. I believe that that should be that that, that practice should end.
1: I do
0: too. I that's what they're trying to do to the January 6th uh, protesters that got arrested and are still in jail without being charged in solitary. How many almost what two years now? Uh, yeah, a lot of those aren't taking the plea bargaining. That's why they're still there. They want them to make a deal. you know uh-uh. stand their ground. We're with you. The day will come. Go ahead,
2: now, sir. Right, so, so that, that I think is an easy one. I think we should get rid of guilty pleas by constitutional amendment or whatever, just federal law creation or whatever. But get rid of it and just force the state, require that the state prove somebody guilty, not, not broker them into making a false admission about themselves. or could be less American to even entertain as a practice? Uh, anyway, so that was number two. The third one I was thinking about was, I believe, as I, I kind of touched upon this with the first point, which is we really do have the bifurcated practice of law, like the original British model of uh, barristers and solicitors. I think the those working for the federal and state governments are barristers, and everybody else is a solicitor. There's, they have to you have to essentially run a business who survive. And
0: what, average, are we, what are we considered? The people that need their services or, or that wants to have their rights due to them, but I have to pay thousands. What what do we consider as?
2: Well, what, like- what, look what's happening, Gary. We're being taxed to pay for those state lawyers. But if we get in trouble, we have to pay essentially a solicitor, a, a lawyer in private practice to sure. represent us. But the state is taking our money to um, To hire federal and state and, and local uh, prosecutors and so forth. So in other words, the system is stacked in terms of making us pay for justice in a way the state isn't.
0: Okay. I think that was clearly said. I think that was clearly yeah. said. It's stacked against yeah. us. They're, they're stacked on each other. That's what they've been doing all these decades and now the new system is what we're seeing January 6th and what's being done to Alice Jones applied to all of us because all these guys are bought into it. They'll all support it. Therefore, who right, are so, we to, What are we considered as? If they're like a culture, what 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 do you think they call us? Primitives? People like myself and everyone else that, you know, that have really no knowledge of the law. Uh, what are we to them? I, I,
2: I, I don't know. I, I think they view us as pikers. But I think that I think we should really ask within the legal profession and the country, what about a system where all lawyers were one thing or the other, they were either all working for the state and all paid so they could do the very, the very best possible job at the delivery of justice.
3: Right.
2: Or they're all in private practice, but to have this bifurcated system of people being salaried um, prosecutors and, and defense lawyers, um, public offenders as we call them in Wa- in Washington yeah. and then having lawyers in private practice, it creates sort of this bifurcated system of injustice, not only to the, to the public, but those who pursue legal careers, you either right. get in as a prosecutor um, or a public defender or in that small group of people hired by very impressive companies, or you are on your own. So I would—I don't know—I'm an optimist. And I have a lot of faith in the American people. I would even consider. Now I may be wrong, but I would consider one the, the former. In other words, a legal profession where everybody was a state employee and paid for it, and maybe the salary would increase with experience as well as the seriousness of the cases.
1: But except you know, you that would you start out to the state. That's the problem with that.
0: They what? You owe to the
1: state. You gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta go by the rules of the state instead of challenging. Right, probably. If that's, no, that's, if the that's the how we would that. analyze
2: that issue, then let's let's re- let's invert that. Let's make it all lawyers being in private practice and handling um, prosecution and defense and other state functions some of the time. Maybe maybe judges would appoint those people all the time rather than just in the case of not having somebody to do a case. And you know they have that in most states they have the authority to appoint somebody to handle a first- degree murder case when the person not represented, or whatever, right? Yeah. So maybe the solution is not to give the state that power, but to sort of devalorize the privilege of lawyers so that they're all doing similar cases all the time. you know, or they're they're working as prosecutors or public defenders. During some of their careers, on a on a case by case basis or a yearly basis. In well, other here's words, here's another take
1: problem, the- Andrew. Here's another problem. Lawyers won't, you know, go against the grain because they have to be in front of those same judges day in and day out. You know, because they're basically, you know, localized and they're in front of the same judges day in and And day. And if you get a bad name, the judge will never rule in their favor, which is a pity for the actual client.
2: True. And that goes to something else I believe we should have, which is tripartite, you know, triumvirate of judges. I don't believe that any matter serious enough to be heard in any court of any kind should be placed in the hands of one person. That's fascistic. And so um, this really kind of gets at where I was going, which is when we have that bifurcated system where you've got state employees serving as lawyers and lawyers working for themselves, what happens there that is basically severely hurting us as a people is that the interests of justice that lawyers are sworn to uphold is placed against their self-interest, right? Certainly in the case of the vaunted careerism of the field at, of in, uh, in terms of any type of lawyer. But I'm thinking that if we could make all lawyers solicitors, let's say, if you don't want to have all lawyers be barristers, then that could work to de-link to de- this inherent contradiction between the interest of justice and the interest of the lawyer.
1: That's not an American thing. That's a British thing.
2: No, I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm analogizing to the British tradition of barristers and and solicitors and saying,
3: Uh
2: as long as we have people coming out of law school and passing the bar who are hired by the state and those who are on their own, like I was, I mean, it took me years to teach myself how to practice law after, after 1996, I would say probably about five years. Okay, so all I'm saying is we have to address the inherent contradiction, the inherent sort of the condign bias, the the conflict between serving the interests of justice as whatever kind of lawyer and serving your self interest. If you are a lawyer in private practice, they they conflict. It would just be it would be like having physicians who don't treat somebody for something. Because they can't at that time. I mean, that, you know, but what we're allowing that bifurcated system that encourages an inherent contradiction between the interests of justice and the self interest of the attorney. You can make a lot of money as a lawyer, but the average American lawyer, as a result of this bifurcated system of justice, makes less than lawyers deserve, in my humble opinion. When I got out of law school, I believe it was $32,500 was the average legal. Um, annual income. What year? I got out of law school in 91 and I I finally completed my education, took the bar and passed it in 96 in Washington. So what I'm saying is there is an inherent contradiction between the interests of justice and the self-interest of lawyers. It's, It's undeniable and lawyers have been tolerating that just like they've been tolerating not honoring
1: recantations. Just like they've... Um, but furthermore, they don't it, want to end cases. They're not making money by ending cases. They want to draw it out.
2: Certainly in certain, certain fields, money. like like family <laughs> law. I mean, family law is basically a racket where yeah. they do everything they can to extend conflict
1: Exactly between
2: a divorcing or divorced married couple.
0: They should call it destroying family law, because family law represents family. Laws that represent and help families.
1: But that's the
2: issue... Of self-interest anyway, again.
1: I, I mean, go into in I the, go into court, and the lawyer on the other side just outright lies. Okay, and I come back fighting. I accuse him of being a liar. Okay, in the court, uh, in my papers, and I prove it. Okay, they just lie outright. Lie. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Well,
2: I, I think that that there could be creative solutions to this problem of the interest of justice versus the interest of lawyers. And I'm, I'm saying, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I'm not the most brilliant lawyer in the country, but I did reach the federal level. I have proved my time travel claims to in the court of public opinion as the great and honorable John J. Sandlin has concluded. I just think that this inherent contradiction is severely damaging and discriminating against the American people because is your lawyer advancing the cause of justice or is your lawyer advancing their self-interest, especially if they're working for themselves, especially if they're not, they're hardly being paid as beginning lawyers where people get paid just for starting as a, as a prosecutor or a public defender, or even more if they're hired by one of these prominent law firms. In other words, I think we should try to equalize, the delivery of justice in terms of the opportunities to the lawyer. I think that will help people. It'll help. Them. Yeah, that'd
1: be great. But human nature yeah. gets in the way, but that'd be great. Uh, but anyway, the purpose of our show is to educate the common person on some law. I mean, in terms of criminal law, I wouldn't advise it, but in terms of civil law, uh to learn your own law and get out, you know, uh, you know, get out of situations just by knowing the law. Right. Well, I think a lot of people are in, in negative situations
2: because most Americans assume that lawyers are advancing the interests of justice, but they're not. They're advancing yeah. their notoriety, their wealth, their need to survive financially.
1: Yeah. I mean, the only way to advance the law is not to settle. It can't be settling, because settling uh, arrests the potential to change the law or or to recognize the law, you settle, and then you know nothing is, you know, nothing is resolved in terms of the actual law. So that that's another problem: settling cases. And of course,
2: now, Gary, um, am I free to say. discuss your case in public?
0: Me? Uh, yeah. Oh, why not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That are you, are you
2: currently are you currently represented by a lawyer in your no. state? No, well,
1: which case, Gary's case? For my case. Yeah. Gary's. Yeah. Gary's case? Gary's case? I'm just a researcher. I'm not practicing. Yeah. Oh, no, I, other I, other no I, I, didn't,
2: I didn't mean you, sir. I meant when my I talked case? to Gary back in 2020, I remember some things about what happened to him. And I just want to say, am I free to talk about that case we discussed a couple of years Why
1: ago? Why not? That case is it, over. Yeah. Right. Well, but 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 yes. that's,
2: yeah. That's Gary's, qu- that's was, Gary's question. That's yeah. his decision. So can I, Gary? Yes. Okay. I believe, that this this is an easy one. When I ran for president in 2016, I, I believe I called for this. Uh, the founder of our country, the, fa- the father and principal founder of our country, George Washington, smoked marijuana. I believe. I'm
3: smoking right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think we should not only make all nine nonviolent drug use, legal, but I think we should release all Americans who are nonviolent drug offenders who have been incarcerated. I find it completely hypocritical that not just Washington, but who else? President Kennedy, President Obama, there's been a lot of pot smoking in this country. And yeah. I think that the, incurs- the the punishment and you know, the Ill- illegal, persisting in this illegal practice of punishing nonviolent d- drug offenses is un-american i think we should all push for that let's get rid of that i don't
3: worry you
2: know we could be getting there to some extent yeah, but not we're completely there. we're yeah. getting there but i've, I've never been a, a a drug person you know i've never been a a, a drug taker uh, i've drunk you know but i, I, I not drink hot. alcohol not that much like
0: <laughs> It helps me. It I helps try. my MS. It uh, has lots of benefits, and it helps me also see what's on Mars. <laughs> right. I
2: know. I, I know a lot of people who are quite brilliant and successful, who have smoked marijuana.
0: Carl
1: Sagan uh, he was a pothead.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but how can we say that Washington was the father of our country, and right. smoked marijuana every night, and it's still illegal, all these hundreds and hundreds of years later? It helps Not people. a paper
1: company in the paper it. It from 1930s. That's the, the
0: yeah, but it also helps break the uh, the the brain the mind control. The hand slips off the mind, allows you to think for yourself. That's why they don't really want it. They have a hypnotic, hypnotic type signal that marijuana actually takes away so they had to make campaigns of, and downplay, oh, it makes you stupid, this and that. Don't you take it by the same ones who are hypnotically brainwashing us through their programming. You,
2: no, right, you, now mentioned, some, you mentioned some sovereign is rights like- issues in, the, in, this, in this podcast. Right. So let me get to my last point that I thought of. It's not really a big deal, mm-hmm. but I think we need to prosecute all phony federal judges. Now, there are still a lot of people in the sovereign rights movement And I'm sure in the January 6th crowd, when I consulted with David Wynn Miller, the author of that, I believe he called it Parse Grammar Syntax or Syntax Grammar. It was this way of challenging legal cases based on syntax, based on verbal analysis.
1: Is that the guy guy who uh, captured the flag?
2: There was, there's been, there were a number of things involving uh, David Winmiller. I believe he's deceased, so I'm not too concerned about um, potentially being viewed as defaming him, because of course we
1: he captured the flag before the British could get there.
2: Yeah, yeah But a... what I, what I wanted to share in light of one? those who are still adhering to certain nostrums of the sovereign rights movement that are not true, mm-hmm. is he told me, David Winmiller told me when I sought him out for that very case I was talking about, the one involving the young man who pled guilty to a statutory rape that he didn't commit against a, a, a 12-year-old neighbor. I asked him to consult with me about how he was going to use his parse grammar syntax to get that still very, quite young man released from from state prison in Washington. And he actually wrote up an argument and filed it with the appellate court, um, in Washington, um, without consulting me. And then I, 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 investigated his claim that he'd won the commendation for the Solomon islands. And I spoke to the number two representative of the Solomon islands, not in the embassy in New York city, cause they don't have one. their Solomon islands is represented in New York city. And the number two person, the number two diplomat for the Solomon Islands said, "We've never heard of David Win Miller, and we don't know what he's talking about. He hasn't won anything from our country. We have records here of every prize that the Solomon Islands grants. So what I'm, what I'm happy to say now that Mr. Win Miller has gone to his next life, is he was a liar. He was lying. I knew he was lying about Parse grammar, syntax, or whatever he called it." Because in the American system of justice, you don't base a legal decision on verbal factors. It's supposed to be a search for fundamental justice, for substantial justice, as it's called in the law. So I just wanted to prize everybody of the fact that it's not a matter of me being some conservative who rejects the sovereign rights movement or the... Uh, or some of the admiralty law arguments that have been made, and it's the fact that Mr. Wynn Miller was a liar, and I proved it just to protect my client. And if anybody has a disagreement with that, feel free to call me, and I'll tell you even more extensively what happened. But he was not representing himself even as the truth. He told me he had the commendation of the Solomon Islands. And when I checked with that government, I proved he did not. And he got a lot of people in trouble with that theory of parsate grammar syntax. So Whoa. now that he's gone, I, you know, I didn't really have a position. Oh, we got to get rid of David Wynn Miller as a phony federal judge. But I realized that it did set a precedent where I think we should get rid of not kill, but, but prosecute phony federal judges. And because his Go technique on. was so sophisticated, um, that never happened. The, the judiciary was saying, well, what if this guy's right? David Wynn Miller may be right. Maybe he's got us, you know, in trouble here, but he wasn't. He was making stuff up. Anyway, I just want to share that kind of as not really my sixth point, but just as kind of a glancing blow
0: well, at what he are was all, doing. So, those are all interesting points. Is like you said, in the interest of justice, so you're seeing a valid uh, accreditation unto my crazy self for the purpose of starting the show with Frank here as meaningful and that could actually help educate us and hopefully you will be on again uh, to continue the path you're laying out here too, sir.
2: Well, yes, I, I I believe you're doing something noble and and good. Um, you know, I am in dialysis and I've lost a lot of my vision, so literally doing legal research to investigate what I'd like to talk about. It's probably going to be a little bit, well, it's going to be impossible. Um, I, I must be honest and say that even though I reached the federal level and I, I hated law school, I loved the practice of law because, you know, in, in Washington were attorneys and counselors at law. So if I, for example, had a client who had been involved in um, stealing from a store, Shoplifting. Um, I could talk to them and straighten out their life and make sure that they didn't damage the rest of their life. So, in other words, I sure I I was an attorney when I was practicing, but I was also a counselor, almost almost a psychologist. And that's what I think is, and I can actually might as well mention that. Mm -hmm. I think that we should think in that term. You know, there's always been that issue of the law versus psychology or psychiatry or psychiatry and the law, I think is taught at some law schools,
0: but that'll stop but in certain
2: areas of legal practice. Um, we're not addressing the fact that some people are broken people right. because of post-traumatic stress, child abuse or whatever medical issues, whatever. And what I found in the practice of law is you could really help people. If you didn't just view yourself as a, as a as as a barrister, you know, as a uh, uh, some shuckster lawyer, but as more of like a priest or a psychologist. So I really believe in the counselor part of some state bar uh, oaths. You know that you're supposed to be a counselor as well. I strained out a lot of people involved in in crime. That's right. a they
0: say talk to a counsel. Do you have your counsel with you? I mean, how can you be a counsel if you don't have a counselor?
2: Well, I think they didn't just mean counselor they, you know, in the law. I think that bro- my point is that broadly defined, an attorney and counselor at law can just be a counselor. In fact, in Washington, you can get a license to just be a counselor. You know, I had a friend who was selling biomats from Ridgeway in of Hawaii, and he became a counselor in the biomat technology, you know, the far-infrared technology. So... I think we should create more of a role for that in the American legal system um, and, and and convert a lot of people who would be prone to become lawyers into just counselors. I think that was very progressive and very positive when my adopted home state of of, of Washington state did that. It really is important. You know, not everybody who's troubled is a psychopath. They don't need, you know, years and years of, of psychiatric intervention.
0: or a little Some, pharmaceuticals. Uh,
2: Yeah. So that's one thing I would note that I think we should think about is, okay, how do we take all these people who are prone to become attorneys and just make them counselors at something? Hmm. So anyway, well, that, that was an idea I had, not necessarily for the law, but just for American society.
3: Yeah.
2: But yes, I think you're doing something very positive because I think the system is broken I tried to identify a few things in this discussion that I think have contributed to it being broken. That I think lawyers never even talk about. How many lawyers do we meet talk about the negative effect of guilty pleas and the, and and how it goes against the principle that everybody's innocent until proven guilty? And right. somebody somebody's in a cage like an animal. Now you're guilty, guilty?
0: Now you're guilty till proven innocent. It seems
2: that's often said, but in fact. Most no. people being convicted like, in America yeah. today are pleading guilty. That's another thing I would advise listeners to remember. If you want to beat a rap, plead innocent. Plead innocent. Right. that That's what that system has led to is a kind of a, the same thing that got that young man in trouble who did not commit statutory rape that I spent like six or seven years trying to get out of prison, even though I had the two recantations from his, his alleged victim, but it, his recanting victim, she admitted that she lied on the stand because of her mother. And that, mother could, open, an affair charge, with him.
0: that could open up her to get a charge too. Right. I mean, especially if there was, a, well, it was
2: perjury. Yes. But you know, that's another thing we, we can make that point. Number seven, when okay. we do have these recantations by alleged victims who have lied on the stand, they're seldom being prosecuted for perjury. Now, it, it, it matters, I think, that she was 12 years old when, when she made her, her, uh, her accusations against this individual. I would not hold a 12 year old uh, responsible for perjury even at age 26 or 32 or whatever. So I wouldn't have given her a perjury rap, but we're not, when this does exist, we're not prosecuting it for perjury enough. And also in in very liberal states, we're saying, well, he admitted something. It must have been true. And now she's just denying it because of such and such or whatever. So it gets back to the recantation issue and that recantation should matter. You know, and unfortunately, the the admission of a crime that was not committed a guilty plea has suasion in our society, not just in our in our uh, in our courts. And I think that's un-American. I'm sickened by that case. It may have been the case that damaged my vision and made me um, not want to practice law anymore. It was just so unjust because... The the girl who had allegedly been uh, statutorily raped was even explaining about her mother and what her mother was like and why her mother had essentially forced her to lie. This no, was a 12-year-old who was being pressured by her own kith and kin, her mother, to lie yeah. on the
0: stand. Throwing and, her daughter into her own sins.
2: Yeah, she was throwing her...
0: Daughter under the bus. Her sins. Or she,
2: was, she was throwing her sins on her daughter. Right. And, 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 a, and a, a, a state as, as liberal and progressive as Washington should have gotten that. It was so easy to prove, and they wouldn't back down it was like oh he admitted this he's got you know why
1: they argue argue, oh we need to uh, respect the finality of judgments you know that that one but yeah we need to you know get to the end of it and have you know respect the finality of judgments but what the the grain of that is a fraud claim which in this case you could say you know was false testimony was a fraud uh But um, and then, you know, justice, justice must be done. And so if if there was a wrong rule. I
2: don't I don't feel that that, that that's what it was in that case and perhaps throughout the Northwest. I believe it was a kind of systemic prudery that made those pleading guilty to statutory rape assumed to be a pedophile or a rapist and I don't, which is the same thing in that, that, well, you know, in that way. In line. I don't believe that, I don't believe, in other words, I don't believe it was the finality of, 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 of judgment arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some off-color jokes in the Northwest about sex that convinced me that going back to the pioneer days when women were short, there was kind of a neurotic attitude about sex that began in washington oregon did you know that even in the 50s i believe it was it was illegal to marry or date a chinese person of Mm -hmm. either gender you know so when i began to really dig into the history and culture of washington oregon and look at things like the wenatchee washington case and that particular case that i handled i didn't think it was a finality of of judgment type argument that made them Mm -hmm. think well he's got to He pled guilty. He's got to stay in in prison. I think it was sexual dysfunction in that state and that region of the country. And that, that it wouldn't have been illegal and wrong if it had happened. But the thing is, I had all the evidence that it had just not happened. And the, and the recantations of the putative victim who was not a victim except of her mother, you know, um, and if that had happened, I would have said, "Sorry, I don't. I'm not going to take your case." You know, he, the age of consent in the so state is 16. She was somebody... 12, and she's a kid. Tough uh-huh. luck. You know, you're going to prison for 20, 30, 40 years. That wouldn't have bothered me. I think right. that pedophilia is wrong. I'm saying yeah. that I don't think that's what prevented the state of Washington from admitting that I had two recantations at different levels of maturity in the life of that alleged victim you know the allegations at 12 the first recantation at i forget whether she was 16 or 18. i think she might have been 18. you know she she looked him up and thought oh my god he's in still in prison and then also at age 26. and i presented that and they would just not listen to what was going on and i had to ask myself is it is it the law and the finality of judgments or is it a kind of a, an attitude about sexual intercourse in this state, and this region? And based on what I saw in Oregon when I was in law school, and I lived often in, uh, in Portland, Oregon, while practicing in Vancouver, Washington, and um, I, I, I concluded it was cultural. So we have to start asking in making law more just, what are the cultural things that are actually driving the ineffective delivery of justice? What culturally is, you know, again, it gets into that sort of that area of, of law and psychiatry that some law schools began to have classes in back when I was in law school over 30 years ago. But, um, we haven't done so as a country, and you know the argument for that, by the way. Well, how
1: far I did think, these cases go when you when you were doing the recantation? Did they actually have a hearing, or they just from get go? Oh no, we're not going to reopen the case.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it 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 got advanced. They were basically saying we're we're not yeah. going to allow this. He pled guilty, you know, and and well, was there a hearing? Yes, there were okay. numerous hearings, and what, what okay. I'm saying was
1: jury no okay
2: and and besides we had the I, i had the whole case written up within several years of him pleading guilty uh when he was not guilty in other words it was all there and um you know his father was involved in trying to get him out the girl who he had allegedly had sex with was and uh, testifying. And it it didn't work because they didn't want to let somebody go.
1: I mean, was was there an evidentiary hearing or just preliminary hearing?
2: Both. What I'm saying is that that's the the non-delivery of justice in America. If you plead guilty to something you didn't do, Good luck. And by the way, he had pled guilty for a, a lesser uh, penalty, but they threw the book at him, and that was a public defender who I witnessed practicing
0: in the, the cross
1: County courts. That's a double crossing. And, yeah.
0: So now, maybe Mr. Bassagut would like to hear. Maybe Mr. Bishaga would like to hear about what that crazy judge did. He ordered a girl that. Because she, I guess, she was retarded or whatever bias, other mindsets that would have made him made him declare as an order, a judge's order signature, right, to cut out her vagina or whatever, so she could never have kids.
1: Uh, Sparkman versus Stump. That's disgusting. You know about that case? That case is the case that laid the foundation for judicial immunity. Went all the way, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Years later, the girl got married and sued the judge for for ordering her to to uh, be and um,
0: to be sterile.
1: Basically, went through all these courts all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled a judge is immune. Even for malicious acts. You know about that, right, Andrew?
2: Yeah, yeah. That That's part of the, one of the reasons I was calling in this show for uh, triumvirates of, of three judges. Even of different political persuasions, if they could be screened, how can we allow one judge to uh, That's not what happened in Stump?
1: Like that. that. That's not what happened in Stump. It went to the United States Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Huh.
2: Well, I'm saying, but, but why, why they not? They rule. I think it's the French. They don't they the French it's use... that? No, I'm just, I'm not addressing that case. And I, in fact, wasn't expecting to address cases on this
0: podcast.
1: No, what was, I'm saying was,
0: is... Uh, think about it. It's weird. Let the people know what exists.
1: Yeah. I think it's anyway, the French. In my case, I think you the my French allow you don't have to, you don't only have to for triumphs. You don't have to comment. I just tell you what's going on in my case. So, I'm suing three judges and the clerk for tampering with the record, which dismissed my case up at the appellate court okay, illegally, all right? And so, the, um, of course, I then pulled a uh, 60B independent action against yeah. the three judges and the clerk. And the, and the trial judge came right in, you yeah, we have, the judges have absolute judicial immunity. Okay, that so always course, struck me yeah. as
2: unjust. That that's another good one to okay. add for today's show. I mean, I appreciate okay. that. I didn't think okay. about okay. that. I just, I,
1: in a nutshell, in a nutshell, I'm saying that the definition of jurisdiction. Because the the thing is, is as long as the judge was acting within his jurisdiction, he's got immunity, even for malicious acts. That's the full thing,
3: right? Right.
1: As long right. as he's acting within his jurisdiction, But so I had to beat. The jurisdiction for okay so I said that the definition of jurisdiction is legal power to act got that legal power to act now it's coming from the best definition of jurisdiction uh, from all the dictionaries okay so then I said you cannot say that uh, acting criminally is legal power to act.
2: Yeah, but, but but what was the impediment? What was the problem? What was the rub, as Shakespeare would have said? It was you're speaking in the singular. It was the judge. What I'm implying, and that's kind of the direction I thought this um, podcast was yeah. going to be going, is how can we improve the delivery of justice in America? Yeah. I would favor, I think it's the yeah, right
1: one,
2: of... Well, that's, that's part of that, but I'm saying with three judges, you'd have to get a conspiracy of judges to convict What's a conspiracy? to reach us any, any, any decision. Why not What's have cons- three judge panels? We've got a, we've, we've had a surplus of lawyers for a good 40 or 50 years. Why don't we just create three judge panels rather than, mm. uh, rather than investing one judge with such overwhelming authority over somebody's fate.
1: Of whatever I think of it, whatever by kind. The time you're in a court, you're gonna have at least three judges, okay.
0: They'll be monitoring each other, make sure each one's pun intended, up to the bar on the square. <laughs> I don't know. I think Miss you laid out a lot of good points uh, for the audience and definitely and for the interests of justice, that definitely is worthy of an anal of itself. And uh yeah, and again, in further times and further shows, you're more than welcome to come back if you have something to talk about or you would like to add some or or just chime in. You're more than welcome, sir, because we need it to go and we need to teach the public. And it helps Is a part of a venue maybe you can utilize to help uh, bring up those points and uh, help work us toward the goals you're setting forth.
2: Yeah, I I, um, I was kind of trying to isolate structural issues. I don't Mm -hmm. think that there's enough, you know, with the doctrine of stare decisis, which is basically the decision stands, I think beginning in law school, lawyers are are subjected to essentially sort of a form of mind control. I remember how different academic and intellectual points that people would make, or I I remember one time I, I, I answered a question by referencing, uh, a book by Daniel Goldman, the writer, mm-hmm. and nobody said anything. So I realized, wait a minute, these, these aren't intellectuals. Um, I'm trying to think of what the name of this book was, but it escapes me. So I just thought of it the other day. But anyway, in other words, I realized in my first year of law school that law is not, it's not an intellectual field. It's almost sort of a, by enforcing the doctrine of stare, it's almost a form of mind control where law is everything and equity is is nothing. That would be my overarching concern about the system of justice in America is a lack of equity. I think we should try to reform it to to achieve more equity um, as as a practice, not just in the abstract, but literally empowering lawyers to make equity-based arguments, empowering judges to be more philosophers. But I think the doctrine of stare decisis is creates kind of a de minimis way of analyzing things. That's why I've almost never really, I wouldn't say I've taken seriously. I mean, I had to master the kind of arguments that we did here today, but I, I, I just knew that somehow they were trying to shoehorn everything into stare decisis. And therefore the original thinking of what was wrong and right and what was just and unjust was being lost. So that would be my overall structural argument would be, how do we incorporate more equity-based arguments in the ways that are fair? Um,
0: and constitutional.
2: Yeah. How do we, how do we trim back the doctrine of stare decisis or the decision stands? without making every legal case kind of an ad hoc exercise that wouldn't be fair. But at the same time, um, stare decisis is almost a sort of a, a form of mind control that lawyers are taught. And then you're supposed to learn how to enforce it with the right terminology and so forth. So I think in that sense, the American legal system shares a lot of the problem that the medical system has.
1: You have to define Um, that for the audience, Andrew, because most of the audience doesn't know starts this. How do you say it again? Stare decisis is the doctrine in
2: in American law that the, the decision stands. So the law isn't studying what's just, what's fair, what's equitable. They are engaging sort of in system science about what's already been decided. Now we don't live our lives that way, thank God. We don't say, "Well, I decided that once; I better always do that that way." That's what Buckminster Fuller called the mistake mystique. So always, just- I'm, I'm, I'm i, <laughs> I, 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 I I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tipping my hand here as an attorney that I always felt that the doctrine of stare decisis was mistake mystique a la fuller in other words we did it wrong once let's keep on doing that because that's the law you say and that is not necessarily the way that you could construct a system of justice you could have arguments saying well here's what's at stake here what would be the most fair take for example contract law you know all a contract is a legal enforceable agreement right but who does it favor? Those who know contract law, people are ripped off every day in America because of contract law and the superior knowledge of contract law by certain lawyers and business people and so forth. So uh, I I think that doing what's fair would be better than what's legal as much as we do. But I think the countervailing concern, of course, is to treat everybody the same in in, in either very similar or identical circumstances. It's the sort of the reproducibility of starry devices. But it is a kind of a bias in our culture that needs to be reexamined.
0: Well, that's all important points. We're coming down to the close, though. Um, so you will be on again then in the future, correct? I'll get that. Sure, out of- sure.
2: But I, you know, I, I'm doing a lot, uh, doing a lot of um, radio shows. I'm, I'm doing uh, Gary Anderson's Night Dreams Talk Radio. I'm doing regular podcasts with the brilliant leader in exopolitics, Dr. Michael Sala. So I could see stopping by, but only with the caveat that I'm not practicing anymore. And I must be honest that while I may have been a courageous time traveler and uh, Mars explorer, I hated law school. <laughs> and I pretty much taught myself how to practice after passing the bar. And uh, I don't really miss it. I don't miss it because I, I, I've always found most Supreme Court decisions foolish in the extreme. Hmm. Um, I always loved uh, William O. Douglas's writing, but I think because he he realized that, uh, as he put it, that the fix, is when, it? when the fix is equal, justice is served. Oh,
3: I thought That's he was going to say fix ones. is in.
2: <laughs> That's true. Yeah, William O. Douglas, who at one point had of the Supreme Court cases had his name on it. That's a statement from him. When the fix is equal, justice is served. I think that's that's a truism. And I don't think we're getting justice with enough reliability for me to want to spend any more of my limited time in this lifetime on this planet um, arguing about a a broken system. Yeah, I hear
3: you. Uh,
2: There were some very...
3: Like you've some very about.
2: honorable uh, judges that I I was had the pleasure of hearing before in in Washington State, right. but um, I'm I'm not convinced that's something I want to do anymore.
0: Gotcha. Uh, so we, right. Now we do have a question from someone, uh, Donovan, who does have a Mars-related question. Even though I said this ain't a Mars-related show, but why not? Uh, and this is a good. Time for you, if you want to answer that, sir. Are you cool with it? Sure. All right. Uh, sure. Well, that's th-
2: my métier because that's what I'm capable of. You know, that's what I'm. That's what I'm uniquely, uniquely knowledgeable to talk about. I mean, there are many. Right. Uh, how many lawyers in the country? Uh, a couple million? You know.
0: Right, but he asks, uh, "What do you think of the doorway on Mars?" I'm sure you already know what that um, I'm referring to.
2: The doorway on Mars, which recently surfaced, is like hundreds of images from the red planet in nasa's rover images Mm -hmm. spirit curiosity and spirit opportunity and curiosity that have been found by my organization the mars anomaly research society since i wrote discovery of life on mars in 2008 it's interesting it's a created object from what i've been able to see of it with my damaged vision Right. My visual impairment, but it's not in any way singular in the same way that the UFO field has been influenced by this sort of Benny and Barney Hill syndrome, this Travis Walton ism, this Roswell ism. We've had a similar treatment of everything on Mars, even Richard C. Hogan's original statement about the uh, face on Mars. There's thousands mm-hmm. of faces on Mars. Indeed making making statues and sculptures and tableaux and so forth of human and other primate faces is the predominant martian art form and i showed i showed that over 10 years ago in my paper um, for pro, at, at projectmars.net um, that uh, you know that that there are there are a thousand faces on mars and so i think i entitled the paper
0: you i was know, doing some
2: sort of I occasional you, look, papers I, about mars for, for years
0: i'm writing my book now uh, the faces of mars book one uh beyond mere tricks of light and shadow uh it'd be cool if maybe you could give a comment or two of course you'll get a copy in order to be able to comment <laughs> but uh before publishing if that's cool with you um if you want well gary cool. we
2: we Lewis Reiner and I have talked about putting out everything that Mars has accomplished when I say Mars, I mean the Mars Anomaly Research Society mm-hmm. uh, which we've wanted to do ever since uh, the National Geographic ripped us often used the, the logo of our organization for its special edition about what's on Mars after not even answering me when I sent him my paper in two thousand eight and nine uh. and we've talked about you i I, I think you probably saw that. Uh, an invitation to contribute maybe, you know, five to 10 of your best images. So yes. we're going to have the. So,
0: yeah. so I figured it was on the, we talked about that a couple years ago on this show. Well, right, right.
2: And that's going to come out. Hopefully it's going to come out in about what, about six years. So we're going to just take our time, bring that out right. in, in, uh, in 2028. So no rush, just, but we, you know, we, we think you've made it a a voluble contribution to the field. And
3: uh, I appreciate
2: tell you about the, yeah, yeah. So let's just talk talk about that in terms of, uh, you know, where Mars is going.
0: Yeah. And, you know, legal wise, I mean, if it came to an issue just to bring up about the face in a judicial manner, we, I have I, I thought I had the screenshot of it I must have lost it but I added the face I was like look how can you beat Twitter right everyone's uh, twits over it right so yeah. I have uploaded the face one day and it said whose face is this <laughs> you, you know because he used to say whenever you put up pictures of yourself or someone it asks you also to tag them whose face this is it, it's AI acknowledge the face of Cydonia whose face is this <laughs>
2: Right, I mean, that's, that's, what, is, that's what I what call is, the de minimis strategy, the right. strategy of disinformation. You hide what exists by de minimis techniques. You don't say there's, oh, there's a thousand faces on Mars and hence a civilization capable of building that, even over many you know centuries or whatever. You talk about the face on Mars. That's So the same thing has been applied to the red planet that's been applied in, in ufology in general.
0: Right. And it's not right. And,
2: and, and that's not going to su- succeed. Right. It's not going to succeed. So we just got to right. keep on fighting for the truth.
0: Well, definitely. I appreciate that. Keep me in tune about... You know deadlines and when I should send certain things in. But it'd be great if you could give a plug out for that book when it comes out. Uh, And and I'm trying to get others too. Others have volunteered, so I didn't want to leave you out also. Um, Just to see where it goes. Because based on my work, uh, you know, I deal with the images, process them, study the surface intently, and that's that's my science. You know what I mean? And we have with science we just require usually, you know, three sources. We have more sources. Uh, from the, my case in the research in the face. So any input and thanks uh, for the recognition and any input into it to help because if it has to go to court, it has to. Uh, you know, why only one high-rise image? I mean, well, again, we'll save that for Mars. But again, I appreciate your right. time with us and uh, any final comments in uh, regards uh, to the show. Anything else you want to say before we close down?
2: No, just that if we can relate justice to Mars when we do that book, put it out in six years. We're still compiling all the great images, including a number of your own, if you let us, you know, include them in that volume. Correct. Right. We have to think about how to treat Mr. hoagland right? And I think that the challenge That'll is be to show that that famous picture of him on CNN with the face on Mars at Sidonia. In other words, rise above the manipulation of the data. And say, okay, that was a moment in history. It was. I mean, I don't think we should begrudge Hoagland for that contribution.
3: No,
2: not um, at all. He did. He did state that I was just what? What did he say? Uh, talked about it a few days ago. He uh, he said I was a CIA agent or something, and he spelled my name. Really? Oh, I know. He said I. He said I was a CIA legend, and I thought, well, that's that's funny. I mean, my my name, my address in Washington, and 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 uh, my date of birth and all that's right there on the Washington state bar association website and still is, you know, so he was claiming that I was a CIA legend and he would spell my name, Bashago in small letters between hard parens and double quotation marks, you know? And I thought, well, I'm not denying that you're a person, Mr. Oakland. So I think it would be the better part of valor to say, okay, his appearance on CNN with that one shot, of the face on Mars at Cydonia, was part of the discovery of life on Mars. It was part of the the, uh, moment in Mars Anomaly Research. But that would only be valid if we move beyond that and show your work and that of the other 34 people who have either been Mars members, maybe about 25 members of the Mars Anomaly Research Society, maybe 10 independents, to show that many, many people have contributed to our understanding about what's on the Red Planet. And what did CNN do? It just dealt with Hoagland and Cydonia. That's that's the de minimis approach to disinformation. And we've right. got to move beyond that. So let's let's rise above it and say, okay, you know, his CNN appearance matters. It's kind of an important moment in time. Yeah. Um,
1: and well said, there, Andrew. Well said. Thank yes, you. and thank you.
0: I think that's a good place to stave off now. So again, thank you very much, sir, for uh, being on. And uh, let's talk soon and watch every law-breaking day. But how much like could there be in the law-making days ahead? That's what you know. I think the question is, and we'll see what unfolds. And you're more than welcome back.
2: Sure. Th- thank you.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Andy. You have a good day, sir.
2: You. You, you as well. Take
1: care. Uh, pleasure meeting you, Andrew. And uh, if you get a chance, uh, look up my name on the internet and you'll find some March stuff.
0: All right. All right. So thank you. There goes Andrew Bashago. So very interesting. You know, he has a lot of knowledge of the law, and obviously he laid down some foundation points from his opinion as a lawyer, and uh, many of them, in my opinion. Listen, I'm no lawyer, but Frank, did did he leave sound uh, footprints of uh, things that are important in order to do reforms and how the law should be?
1: Frank, right, you asking me? You're asking me how the law sh- should be? Well, I have some disagreements with him but he's been beaten down by his individual case and right. after pursuing for six years, uh, I don't, you know, I might have done some things differently if I was in his shoes, but it is what it is. And, um, you know, I think the key is, uh, you know, uh, emphasizing fraud in a case like his, because uh, then you can reopen the case. But, nice. um Usually, usually, when somebody comes forth after many years to say, oh, I wrongly testified against this individual, usually there's an agreement that there will be no prosecution on that witness uh, that they're moving. Because that, ha- that there's a case in Connecticut where that precisely happened that uh, the guy got let out of prison after uh, 30 years or more. Wow. But he, and he did not, he was innocent.
0: That's horrible. That's a grave injustice. He can't get that time back. But uh, speaking on the marijuana legal legality, I keep, I keep, I
1: keep getting business calls. Uh, so uh, yeah, so he he agreed not to prosecute the witness, and he got out. He got paid a million dollars by the state.
0: Still, he should have got much more. But on the legalization of marijuana, I just got a message from Normal. The good news keeps—hold on, check this out. The good news keeps coming. Wanted to let me know that uh, just this morning, North Dakota had certified their marijuana legalization ballot measure for this November's election, joining Missouri, Maryland, and South Dakota as uh, states that will also be voting on legalization this fall. Let's not let this opportunity pass us by and deliver a real body blow to the, our nation's failed prohibition, especially in regards to marijuana. You brought it up earlier. Uh, it was about the thirty, like within the 30s, it really went in. And believe it or not, one of their main excuses, I watched a documentary on it, with, uh, that stated it was mainly because they control the influx of Mexicans. Ain't that racist? <laughs> okay. I mean, You know, you
1: know that that in the 1920s and 30s, marijuana became illegal, right? Because the paper companies pushed the issue. Why? Because the fibers of the stems of marijuana make superior paper, and it's a (laughs) renewable source and
0: and superior
1: ropes. So, if they had uh, legalized it back then, we could have saved how many countless floors? You know. You know
0: and economy so. would be far different, harder to destroy. But anyway, yeah, but they yeah. had to put some on a racist also as a cover to control the influx of Mexicans. Isn't that a joke? Now they uh want our borders open that get a lot more than Mexicans running through. There are replacements. In the interest of justice, build that damn wall and clean house. Oh Frank, uh I don't I thought it was a pretty informative show though. And yeah. uh hopefully yeah, listen. Like
1: Okay, I want to I want to uh tell you that uh the audience that coming up will be uh uh soon will be the uh the great laser Hoss who is involved in the Tom Petters Ponzi scheme case and the Toys R Us bankruptcy case. And it's to be highly enlightening. Highly enlightening. So, on that note, I have to go. I've got all these business calls coming in. And uh, this is
0: the best. Hopefully it's, Hopefully, it's good news soon. Damn it. All right, buddy. All right. So uh, th- there goes Frank. Thank you very much, Frank. Again, in the interest of justice, of where we all go. Again, the motto you all must consider and, and is in my spirit. Uh, why, why are you you where you are? Why do you say this you do? Why, why this? Why are you saying that? You can't say that bullshit. First Amendment. He who is not angry when there is just cause for anger is immoral. Why? Because anger looks to the good of justice. And if you can live amid injustice without anger, then you are immoral as well as unjust. Stay out of our way. That being said, we are the ones.